Well, today I was going to get really uh, in earnest into our series on Well Done, Good and Faithful Church, beginning in 1 Timothy 4. But today's topic was going to be understanding the gospel in light of the false teachers infiltrating the church all around us. That's a pretty heavy topic. It's important. It's vital for all of us. But with the home going and the, the passing away of our brother and our elder in the church, Tim Powell, I felt like we needed to pause for this moment. Because as weighty as that topic is, the very heaviest and weightiest of all issues has been presented to us, and that is the eternal destinies of men and women, the immortal souls of human beings. Tim had a heart for the lost. He loved to see the lost saved. He also had a heart for those who know Christ to be discipled. He loved the preached word of God. He, he marveled at the gospel. He never ceased to be amazed at the wonder of the cross. And we all as a church hurt deeply for his beloved wife, Monica, for their children, for their grandchildren. And I don't intend today to be really a memorial service for Tim but it does give us ample reason to pause. It gives us reason to consider eternity. Because our brave elder has done something that none of us has ever done. And that is to cross from this life into the next. And what is in the next life has been the question of the ages. And the only trustworthy answer is found in the pages of Scripture. Every one of us, every one of you, Myself will have a final breath. We will have a last heartbeat. We will have a last blink of the eyes. This is coming to every one of us. Shortly after Tim went to be with the Lord, his dear wife Monica texted out very simply, my precious husband is now with his beloved Savior. And I thought that's the theme that I would take this morning. We all... We know that all the Bible is the Word of God and therefore is the Word of Christ. But while He was on earth, Jesus did speak some specific words here. And so this morning, I'd like to use only the words of Jesus to look at the topic of the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. And I read earlier from Psalm 23. It's very familiar to you. It's from King David who did not fear this terror. He said in verse 4 of Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But what was the basis of David's fearlessness when it comes to the valley of the shadow of death? How is it that he could say in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What was, his, what was the basis of his fearlessness? His basis was a repentant faith in the one true living God. And this faith we know is ultimately found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe on him. So what does it mean to walk in the valley of the shadow of death? It's the shadow that we all walk under. You look in the mirror every day and you see that you're a little closer to that shadow. You feel the creaks and you feel the, the, the different things happening to your body. You, you're, you're taking more medication than a pharmacy uh, compared to 10 years ago. 
And we sense the impending shadow. So what does it mean to walk in the valley of the shadow of death? I'd like to have the words of our Savior speak directly to us. And what we're going to do, kind of Bible study style, is just take a couple of passes through the Gospels here. And I simply want to, first of all, show you the destiny of those who reject Christ's offer of salvation. And second, the destiny of those who receive Christ's offer of salvation just from the words of Christ. First, let's look at the destiny of those who reject Christ's offer of salvation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And again, we'll just do a simple Bible study and we're going to compile some facts about what Jesus says of those who reject his offer of salvation. We're going to start a sentence and then we'll kind of add to it for this section. What we see here is that they go to a place Jesus calls hell. And we're going to list some facts. Fact number one, hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. Jesus meant to strike terror into those who would toy with sin, who would play with their sin, and so he used an exaggeration, a hyperbole, to show the radical lengths that someone ought to go to to be rid of sin which you can't control, which is now controlling you. Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now obviously... An external act cannot produce internal righteousness. This is not an act of creating righteousness somehow by by some sort of self-mutilation. What he's talking about here is, is the radical forsaking of sin outwardly, which is a reflection of the inner change that's been affected by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God has convicted you of your sin and you you hate your sin and you you throw it out. But Jesus pictures hell as someplace so terrible that it's like a man with his foot caught in a railroad track. Better to cut his foot off than to be caught in the oncoming onslaught of the whole train and lose his life. Hell is a real place. And, and whatever it takes to avoid it is worth it. Hell is a real place. Turn with me to Matthew 8, just a page over or so. Jesus is marveling at the faith of a Gentile, a Roman centurion who has great faith in Christ. And Jesus uses this occasion to warn that many of the physical descendants of Abraham, actual physical Jews, will not see the kingdom, while many Gentiles will see God's kingdom. And this brings us to fact number two, and we're just adding to the sentence, hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger. Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me pick up on three descriptors here. Hell is a real place of rejection. The outer darkness. The outer darkness speaks of being away from God's blessing, away from His goodness, away from His light. It's a place of total rejection. It, there, there is no sense of, of hope whatsoever. There is, it is a level of rejection that no human being has ever experienced until hell. Not only is it a place of outer darkness, he said it is a place of weeping. This is the crying of self-pity from those who are so enamored with their own misery that they weep continually for themselves. This is the horror of never-ending suffering and never-ending self-pity. It'll never, ever end. It's horrific. And then he says it's a place of gnashing of teeth. Now, lest you feel overly sorry for those who will be in hell at the last judgment... Remember that they will be in a state of perpetual self-righteous anger for being there. There's no humility. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no repentance. There's just anger at God. The gnashing of teeth is how dare you put me here. Turn with me to Matthew 10, maybe a page over or so. Jesus is instructing the twelve before he sends them out on a missionary assignment and he reminds them, Not to fear the unbelievers, but to fear God only. To fear only God. And he does so with a reminder about hell. And we'll add to our sentence with fact number three. This one might surprise you. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger controlled by God. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger controlled by God. Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus warns them not to be afraid. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we should note here that the destruction spoken of here doesn't speak of eventual annihilation, but of the complete utter defeat of the whole person, that they're destroyed forever, as it were. And perhaps unlike our cultural or mythological notions of hell, hell is not run by Satan. Hell is controlled by God. It is a place that He is in control of. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger controlled by God. Turn a couple pages over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, about the middle of the chapter. It's a long chapter. Verse 36, Matthew 13, 36, Jesus has told a parable about a man who sows seed in a field, but an enemy comes and sows bad seed, weed seed, so to speak, among the good seeds. And so the man, the farmer, allows both to grow up until the harvest time. Here's fact number four. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger controlled by God, characterized by fire. It is characterized by fire. Matthew thirteen thirty six. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many feel that burning alive is the greatest pain a human being can experience. The pain of the torment of this torture, but that is the pain of the lost, and, and it's eternal. There's no reason to make the flames of hell figurative. Fire is a very consistent picture of hell in the Bible. In fact, this place translated hell is named after a real place. The specific earthly place was originally called Topheth, and it means the drums, like drumming. And it was in the Valley of Hinnom. Second Kings 23.10 tells us this, and In the valley of Hinnom, Topheth, in this valley, was an idolatrous worship center from the time of King Ahaz all the way to Manasseh. It was south of Jerusalem. And here, horribly, children, babies, infants were burned alive as an offering to the god Molech. 2 Chronicles 28 tells us. And the drums, the Topheth, were beaten to drown out the screams of the dying children. Ultimately, the good king Josiah destroyed Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom and it was made into a garbage dump for Jerusalem's trash and it was tended with a continually burning fire. There's evidence in the book of Jeremiah that Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom may have reverted back to child sacrifice practices at a later time. And so as punishment for this, Jeremiah proclaimed that in the future, the Valley of Hinnom would be called the Valley of Slaughter since many would be slain there, and for lack of room elsewhere, the dead would be buried in Topheth also. Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom became a symbol. It became an illustration of all that is loathsome and a symbol of destruction in general and the eternal judgment of God in particular. In fact, from Jerusalem, the smoke coming up from this valley was a common sight. The continual burning of that which is discarded. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom became better known by its Aramaic name, Gehenna. The Greek transliteration of Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament and is translated in English, hell, from the Old English word, hele, which means abode of the dead or place of torment for the wicked after death. Why is the primary feature of hell fire? In the Bible, fire signifies divine, purifying judgment in numbers of places. 2 Peter 3.10, the old earth is burned and purified with fire. Leviticus 10, fire consumes the disobedient sons of Aaron. Numbers 16, fire consumes the 250 rebels against God's chosen leadership in Israel. Genesis 19, God rained fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And concerning the second coming of Christ, which is a coming of judgment, here's a detail we sometimes overlook. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 says that the Lord Jesus will be, quote, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. But we would also note that fire is often symbolic of God's holy presence. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the midst of a fire. In Exodus 13, the presence of God appears as a pillar of fire. In Leviticus 9, fire came out of the tent of meeting and consumed the burnt offering being given to God. Verse 24, Leviticus 9 says, When all the people saw it, 
They shouted and fell on their faces. Why? Because holy God was among them. Turn to the next gospel, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, right near the end of the chapter, verse 43, in a similar speech to the one that he made in Matthew 5, Jesus warns his own disciples that to follow Christ means to follow him completely. So this brings us to fact number five. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger, controlled by God, characterized by fire, that is eternal. It's characterized by fire that is eternal. Verse 43 of Mark 9, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And in this same speech, still warning that to follow Christ, you must hate your own sin, you must follow Him at all costs. He continues the description of the eternal nature of hell. Verse 47, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What does this mean, where the worm does not die? This refers to worms that eat decomposing bodies. And eventually, when the worms run out of food, the worms die. But the worms never run out of food. It is, a, it is a horrific picture beyond our imagination of a continually burning fire with decomposing bodies that won't die and won't go away. In fact, Revelation 20 tells us that all of the lost of all the ages will receive new resurrection bodies in which to experience the judgment of God for all time. And boy, countless theologians have tried to wiggle their way out of the eternal nature of the fire of hell. But Jesus uses a word that is unmistakable. It is unquenchable fire. It will never go out. Why is this? How long does it take to undo a sin of unholiness against a holy God? It takes eternity. It can't be done. It cannot be undone. You cannot unmurder the person you killed. You cannot untell the lie you told. You cannot unsteal the thing you stole. It's always there. Therefore, the punishment is eternal. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, Jesus is warning that few will be saved. Few will be saved. And he implores Listeners, to enter through the narrow door, which is Christ himself. Luke 13, 22, and we'll add one more fact here. Fact number six, we'll finish our sentence here. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger, controlled by God, characterized by fire that is eternal and humiliating. It is eternal and humiliating. Hell is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger, controlled by God, characterized by fire that is eternal and humiliating. What do we mean by this? Luke 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. What is he telling the self-righteous Jews? He's telling self-righteous Jews who believe that they will inherently receive the kingdom because their, their DNA says so, because they're descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door for most of you will not be there. You will not be included. And here's the humiliation where once they had been self-righteous, I don't know how this works out in reality, but he's telling them that they will be aware of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom. They'll be aware of this. Humiliated. They'll spend eternity wallowing in their own degradation and sin, never again having the opportunity to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. There's a popular misnomer that we should correct here hell is not yet populated there's nobody there right now revelation 20 says that all the unsaved dead from all the ages will be thrown into what revelation 20 calls the lake of fire and all who are currently in torment in hades which is a hell-like waiting place for the torment of the dead luke 16 tells us this they'll be judged by their deeds of sinfulness and placed for all eternity into this all too real place. Now someone might be tempted to say, well, God is a cruel God. God is a heartless God if hell exists. And and first of all, we could say this, whether or not you judge God correctly or not is irrelevant. God is God. He will be who he is. And the fact that he has created a hell is not ours to question. And you can ask that question for all of eternity. And I dare say that the gnashing of teeth in hell will be those saying, how dare God have a hell? But I could say this also. If someone's tempted to say that God is a cruel and heartless God because hell exists, I would counter that by saying that hell exists because of the goodness and the justice of God. Why is that? It's the goodness of God that makes hell necessary. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes of the goodness of God. And he says this, quote, The character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5 arrives, retribution will be exact and no problems of cosmic unfairness will remain to haunt us. God is the judge, so justice will be done. In other words, all that is wrong will be made right because that is an outworking of God's goodness. And to make all wrongs right, those who have done wrong and refuse to repent must be punished because that is just. And God's justice and God's goodness cannot be separated from each other. They can't be. That's mankind's first option. 
to go to a hell that is a real place of rejection, horror, and anger, controlled by God, characterized by fire that is eternal and is humiliating. But there is another option. Second, I'd like to look at the destiny of those who receive Christ's offer of salvation. Those who receive Christ's offer of salvation, let's go all the way back to Matthew 5 once again. We'll just go through this Bible study style. Matthew 5, right near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. To the true believer in Christ, he gives instruction to live a life that's visible before the world. And we'll list some facts about heaven. We'll do this more like a list. Fact number one. Heaven is a real place. Fact number one, heaven is a real place. Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is where? In heaven. Heaven is a real place where our Heavenly Father makes His abode. He's everywhere present. He's omnipresent, but heaven is His special place. It's it's His where his temple is, where his throne is. Heaven is a real place. Turn to Matthew 6. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus continues pushing true believers toward an eternal mindset. Matthew 6, verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So fact number two, heaven is where your treasure is. Heaven is where your treasure is. Everything that's truly valuable, everything that is truly a treasure to you either is or will be in heaven. That makes sense to us. God is in heaven. He's the greatest treasure. Jesus is in heaven. He's our savior. Your reward is in heaven. We see that elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. And all the people who love Christ either are or will be in heaven. What other treasure is there? That's all the treasure. Heaven is where your treasure is. Turn to Matthew 25. Near the end of the chapter, Jesus is giving his great Sermon of warning about the end times, the Olivet Discourse, spoken from the Mount of Olives. And he he speaks of when the King, Jesus Christ, brings heaven to earth and what that will be like. Fact number three, again, we're making this more like a list. Fact number one, heaven is a real place. Fact number two, heaven is where your treasure is. Fact number three, heaven is a kingdom prepared for you. Heaven is a kingdom prepared for you. Matthew 25:34 Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Doesn't that sound like a Disney movie? I love Disneyland. I I, I don't mind admitting that. What I like about it is the fact that it's clean. And that there's three people there without a mask. I enjoy that. And I enjoy the fact that they do things right. They do it well. And there's, a, there's an, an intense desire to make everything feel perfect. But it's not really the magic kingdom. It's the money kingdom. It's run by money. 
We don't believe in magic. But if you can picture all the things that we think of in terms of fairy tales, the kingdom of heaven outdoes them all, and it's no fairy tale. It is our reality. It's our reality. Right now, we're just on that really long tram that takes us to the gate. (laughs) Heaven is a kingdom prepared for you. And did you know this? This kingdom has been prepared for followers of Christ since before the foundation of the world. It was always God's plan to bring all who would come to saving faith in the Son into this glorious kingdom. That was always His plan. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. In this great chapter, Jesus gives one parable in three parts. All three parts having to do with the rejoicing that happens at the salvation of a lost person. In Luke 15, fact number four. Heaven is a place of rejoicing over salvation. Fact number four. Heaven is a place of rejoicing over salvation. Luke 15, and I like to read the entire first part of this. It's so good. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The second part of the parable, the same story, the same theme, rather. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want you to notice this. It does not say that there is joy at or by the angels of God, although that is certainly happening as well. It says there is joy in the presence of, in the face of, it before the angels of God. Who is the one doing the rejoicing over salvation? It's God. He's rejoicing. And of course, the most famous part of this three-part parable, the return of the prodigal son, that when the wayward son comes to his senses and comes home, Here's a picture of God rejoicing in heaven over your salvation. Luke 15, verse 20. And he, that is the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then proceeded to have a party for the son who has returned home. Turn to Luke 23, right near the end of the chapter. Jesus is on the cross. One of the criminals being crucified by him asks Jesus for mercy on his soul. Asks him for help. Verse 42, the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Fact number five, heaven is a place of physical beauty. Heaven is a place of physical beauty. And now in verse 43, this wondrous answer that Jesus gives from the cross. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, it's a, it's a word specifically chosen by Jesus. It means a walled garden. It's a beautiful place. It's, it denotes physical features. Heaven isn't just this ethereal, mystical, misty place of mystery. It's a place of brightness and light with God and people and things and beauty and color. I could show you if we had time that there are trees and there are angels, there are streets, there are altars, there are candles, there are flames. Beauty beyond beauty. Heaven is a place of physical beauty. And turn to John chapter 14. John 14 and Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion and death. He gives them such tremendous hope. Such hope. Fact number six. Heaven is prepared by Christ himself. Heaven is prepared by Christ himself. John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, what is this preparation? It's not prepared in the sense of construction. That's not the idea here. It's in the sense of being made ready just for you. A spot prepared for you. Your name on it. Your reservation. Your welcome being made ready. When you arrive at a nice hotel, isn't it nice to be greeted by name? This is much better than that. You're you're greeted by one who has been preparing a place for you. And this is mind-boggling to think that Jesus himself is preparing this place. When we first started doing demolition on the White Lane building... I grabbed some of my tools and came out there. And uh, let me step aside for a moment. You remember when you were a kid and you run into your teacher at the grocery store and that just feels so weird to you? Well, some children of our church are there and they see me in in jeans and a t-shirt pulling nails out of a board and they're all, Pastor Steve, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. Where's your Bible? Where's your tie? Because in their minds, I shouldn't be pulling nails. I should only be preaching because that's all I do ever. Oh, how much more? The Lord Jesus himself smoothing the pillow? The Lord Jesus himself straightening the sign with your name on it? The Lord Jesus himself eagerly awaiting your presence? If you think you're eager to get to heaven, God is perfect. He is more eager than you are. Heaven is prepared by Christ himself. I don't know how anybody could resist this. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is where your treasure is. Heaven is a kingdom prepared for you. Heaven is a place of rejoicing over salvation. Heaven is a place of physical beauty. Heaven is prepared by Christ himself. Our brother Tim has gone to this place. He's there now. 
I don't know what the orientation procedure in heaven is, but the marvels and the wonders that he's seen even now. Jesus has made an amazing promise to anyone who would listen. He said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you hear that? It is possible to know your destiny. It is possible to know that you have passed out of the destiny of hell into the destiny of heaven. It is possible. I want to be very, very clear about the person of Jesus Christ called in the New Testament the Lamb of God because of His sacrifice on the cross. Let me be very, very clear. All people who have ever lived will be in the presence of the Lamb of God for all eternity. All people who have ever lived will be in the presence of the Lamb of God for all eternity. And all people have two choices in how to experience the presence of the Lamb of God. Choice number one. Revelation 14.10 says that the one who refuses to repent of sin and come to faith in Christ quote, will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, that is hell, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The fury and the righteous indignation of the Lamb of God will stoke the fires of hell for all eternity. Why in Matthew can Jesus say the fires are unquenchable? Because he's the one making sure they never go out. Or choice number two, to experience the presence of the Lamb of God. Revelation 22.1, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will be face to face with the loving gracious, glorious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We'll reign in His kingdom with Him forever and ever. Humanity has long held onto the false hope of seeing loved ones beyond the grave. But the only hope of seeing loved ones beyond the grave is to know the one who has conquered the grave. That's the only hope. That is Jesus Christ. And we do mourn the loss of our brother Tim. We didn't get to say goodbye. He has been a faithful elder, a faithful churchman, a faithful husband and father and grandfather. But our mourning is for ourselves only and it's temporary. The greatest loss, the eternal loss, will be for those who hear the gospel message and still turn away. Don't be that person. As far as Tim knew, he was driving to Kentucky to help his kids and come back. We praise God that he has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So what happened to him doesn't matter. 
But if you don't know Christ, you might walk out this door and you might be breathing your last breaths and not know it. Heed the warning. Don't be the one gnashing your teeth. Heed the warning and experience the presence of the Lamb of God in heaven. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. What's the last word? Forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of the fact that our dear brother Tim is in your presence at this moment. It's what we long for. It's what we dream of. We, we are walking one another to heaven and he has now gone to a place none of us have ever seen. But we have your word and we have the descriptions, Lord, that are so certain, so true. And so we can rejoice in his home going. Psalm 139 says that his days were numbered before there was even one of them. Yesterday, our brother Tim went home at exactly the moment ordained for him before the foundation of the world. As will all of us. Oh Lord, let those listening this day heed the call of the gospel. Let them heed the call of the cross. Before it is too late, soften their hardened hearts, Lord. Unstop their deaf ears. Open their blind eyes to come running to the cross of Christ to receive forgiveness given so freely and so graciously. And Lord, we do lift up the family of Tim. We lift up Monica and their children and grandchildren, Lord, that you would be a special blessing to them in this time as they are encouraged in their own hearts to look toward eternity. But that is the only way that they will be reunited with Tim. Lord, I pray for our church as we are now uh, have lost a, a key leader. We ask you, God, to fill his shoes. We ask you, Lord, that you would let the purposes of Grace Bible Church continue forward until all of us are gathered together. And while you say welcome, perhaps we'll receive a welcome from our brother Tim as well. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.